Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture comes from John chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This is the word of the Lord. Well, just go ahead and hang on to that microphone. Come back, come back this way, Mindy, if you would. Just, in fact, let's get out here where people can see us a little bit better. There you go. As some of you may know, Mindy has made the tragic decision. <laughs> she is... Uh, She's moving here in a few weeks to take a job at the Pentagon, I kid you not. I think she's going to fix it, actually. I think she's going to fix uh, the Pentagon. But as she, and she's been super uh, open about the whole process and has talked a lot about it throughout the process, and um, I know for a fact that what weighs heaviest on her is not being able to come here. Now, don't. You make all women cry up here. I'm just... Uh, Not coming... I'm not sure how to take that, but but not... (laughs) Being here with us Sunday in and Sunday out. Um, So we thought it would be a good idea to make sure that she knew how we felt about her before she left. And so we have have secured this Distinguished Service Award, and I just want to read it to you, and you can talk if you want, all right? Oklahoma City First Church of the Nazarene takes great pleasure in presenting this certificate to Mindy Bands. We are so grateful for the gift you are to us. Thank you for your Christ-like example in service, love, and faithfulness. You are forever loved by your family of faith. Will you help me uh, deliver this to Mindy Bands? a hard return. Um, This is not an irreversible decision. Um, (laughs) And Oklahoma is my home, and you all are my family. I may not be here physically, in person, every week, but you are prayed for and you are loved from a distance and up close in my heart. Um, and I feel your love 
um, throughout this whole process. Not a single person, not even Pastor John, has said, this is a horrible idea. I know he wants to say that. Um, it's, I'm but, coming later. Yeah, it's coming later. Yeah. Um, you have, you have uh, been the cheerleaders in my balcony, uh, cheering me on. And um, I would not be doing this if I didn't have that that kind of love and support and encouragement behind me. I have no idea what's going to happen, and I, sometimes I think that's okay. <laughs> it's probably better um, that we don't know what's going to happen. But um, this is a treasure. Um, it was a complete surprise. <laughs> and uh, I'm just incredibly, incredibly grateful. And I love each and every one of you so very much. And... Um, yeah, I think that's all I probably need to say. <laughs> okay. okay. Thank you, Mindy. Thank you. Mindy, we will consider this uh, a loan. Oh, hello. Playing the role of Jason today. Yeah, I don't want Jason to be disappointed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we will consider this a loan, uh, and not the DSA, not the award, but you going to Washington, we will consider a loan, and uh, we will save your spot. Tamara, do I have a thing? Yeah. Until I get it, we may have to do a little bit of coordination up there, Shane. I'll just give you the sign uh, when we are moving on to the next thing. We uh, are in a sermon series entitled Desolation. Desolation. And a little trivia there. Those are the actual fists of our own ministry intern, Camden Goff. How about a hand for his fists? Yeah. Thank you. Um, I really appreciate uh, Pastor Daniel and uh, Pastor Jason Smith giving me opportunity to take a like a two week breather. But man, I was chomping at the bit to get back up here. I I am in a lot of ways I'm most at home when I'm right here, um, preaching, opening scripture for us. Like I said earlier, uh, welcome. To the next to last Sunday in the season of Lent. Now, how, how are your Lenten fasts going? Is everybody batting a thousand? If for some reason you're not batting a thousand as it has to do with giving up this or that and the other, please keep in mind that the Christian life and the season of Lent, it is not ever meant to be understood as a sprint. It's better understood as a long-distance race. As a matter of fact, I, anybody know what a, what a steeplechase, any track and field people out there who know what a steeplechase race is? Yeah, this, this Christian life is more like a steeplechase. And, and here, if you know what, I, know what that is, you know what I'm saying when I say, when you fall down, you just get back up, right? You don't, you don't go back to the beginning of a marathon or a steeplechase. If you fall down, you just, you just get right back up. Nine minutes tempo, and uh, unfortunately, the first kilometer was three minutes 13, and there's a really heavy fall there. Oh, my word for Javes. Goodness me, that is a proper dousing. That is a spectacular one. <laughs> Not making light of her situation there at all. I just love hearing him say that's a proper dousing. <laughs> if you fail, just get back up and go. Just jump back up. People fail. Just get back up and go. And, and please keep in mind that we have been talking about 
this season of Lent, we've been talking about the trek that Jesus took through the wilderness and how that is similar to the trek that we are taking through our own wildernesses, trials and temptations and triggers at every turn. And the wilderness can be exhausting. It can cause so much anxiety, maybe even depression, depending on the wilderness that you are in. Sometimes the temptations are too much, and we do fall into the puddle just over the obstacle. Now, that said, I think wildernesses for us are a given. People, good people, Christian people, godly people are going to go through a season of wilderness. It's just going to happen. That's what it it means to be alive. So the issue is not somehow ridding ourselves of the wilderness. That's not our primary concern. The issue is how we go about navigating the wilderness, the, the posture that we have as we navigate the wilderness. So uh, let me give you uh, a couple of things here. I, I want to, again, using the terminology of desolation and, and using that image that you saw earlier, I want to talk about going through your wilderness with a closed fist as opposed to navigating the wilderness with an open hand. I mean, like Jesus. Like Jesus, right? Going through that particular wilderness. We are slogging through 40 days of struggle. Like Jesus, we are asked to choose between the call of God and our own deep desires to control everything. But the hope in Lent is that we can, like Jesus, open ourselves to grace and ease up our grip on me, mine, and my own. The difficult wilderness isn't our issue, but that posture really is. That's what we choose as we navigate the wilderness. We choose open hands or clenched fists. So here's my question to all of us today. How are you moving through your wilderness adventure? Do you have clenched fists or open hands? Desolation or consolation, open hands. Now, Jason mentioned it last week. These terms, desolation and consolation, they're actually terms in the universe of language that we understand to be the universe of spiritual direction. Spiritual direction. And and maybe that term or spiritual friendship, maybe those terms aren't familiar to you. But I, I can promise you they have roots that are thousands of years old. As early as the mentions of Christianity in the church, you had people serving in these roles as spiritual directors. But if you still don't know what I'm talking about, let me give you a little bit of an understanding here. Let me first start with what it's not. It's not counseling. It's not therapy. But the experience itself very well could be therapeutic. Because a spiritual director will sit with you, listen to you, help you listen to and for the voice of God. And in the process, a spiritual director helps you not only kind of discern your own spirit, but also to discern the spirit of the resurrected Christ in the hopes then that you might better be able to listen yourself. You might better be able to follow. You might better be able to participate with God in the reclaiming of lives your own included, and of life. A spiritual director is going to point out in your life when you are walking with clenched fists, desolation, as opposed to open hands, consolation. 
So there was an author out there by the name of Vanita Hampton Wright. She writes and edits for Loyola Press, and she says this, a person dwells in a state of desolation when she or he is moving away from God's active presence in the world. And we know we are moving in this way when we sense the growth of resentment, ingratitude, selfishness, doubt, fear, and so on. If my outlook becomes increasingly gloomy and self-obsessed, I'm in a state of desolation. I am resisting God, or if not actively resisting, I am being led away from God by other influences. I found another spiritual director by the name of Margaret Silf, who had this list as it has to do with desolation. Desolation turns us in on ourselves. It drives us down the spiral even deeper into our own negative feelings. It cuts us off from community. It makes us want to give up on the things that used to be important to us. It covers up, oh, this is a big one, all of our landmarks, the signs of our journey with God so far, and it drains us of energy. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Does any of that resonate with anybody? Tamara has been singing it to us like this. I put up my defenses and I build taller fences. I sniff out false pretenses and I avoid consequences. I guard what is mine. Trust the bottom line. Question the divine. But don't worry, I'm fine. I'm safe in isolation, the kingdom of desolation. Now again, for the purposes of this sermon and this series... In the series during the season of Easter, let's understand the posture of desolation to be symbolized by the closed hand, the clenched fist. And though we'll have a whole lot more to say about this during the Easter season, let's understand consolation as life lived with open hands. Listen again to Vanita Hampton write, a person dwells in a state of consolation when she or he is moving toward God's active presence in the world. We know we are moving in this way when we sense the growth of love or faith or mercy or hope or any qualities we know as gifts of the Holy Spirit. And Mindy only read a few verses of the text that I'll be preaching from today. But in that eight verses that, I'll be, that we'll be looking at together today, you're going to get a good look at each of these examples. You're going to see an example of clenched fists faith. But you're also going to see open-handed faith. And over all of them will hang this threat of death. Let's call that the wilderness. Over all parties involved today, Jesus included, there is the threat of death. The wilderness is ever-present. It's a given. I've already said that. Now, How will we posture ourselves, any of us, Mary, Martha, Jesus, and Judas, how will they posture themselves as the threat of death hangs in the air? Now, why is there the threat of death hanging in the air? Well, in order to see that, we have to go backwards a chapter, a familiar chapter to all of us, Jesus' encounter with Mary, Martha, and the dead, Lazarus. So reading from John chapter 11. There was a certain man who was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So the sister sent message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Turns out Jesus loves these people. Let's put them in the best of friends circle for Jesus. Loves them enough to care when they are sick. Loves them enough to move their direction when they are sick. Although, 
Verse 5, though Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And in those days, Lazarus, y'all, Lazarus died, like died, and was so dead that by the time he had gotten there, even where their ancient thinking was concerned, all of the spirits had left the body. He was four days dead. He was dead and headed toward dusty. (laughs) So when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them. Martha comes out to Jesus and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is big words coming up here. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha thinks she knows what he's talking about because it was and is the ancient Jewish belief in a final, vast, broad resurrection that God would at some point conquer all of death and all would be raised. And so thinking that that's what Jesus was talking about, Martha said, I know, I've sung the songs, I've heard the lessons, I've read the scriptures, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, that day is this day. Jesus said to her, I am that resurrection and the life And those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Jesus said, great. Can you go find Mary for me? Verse 33. When Jesus sees Mary weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. And here it is, verse 35, Jesus began to weep. And everybody looking on, including us today, looks and sees, this is what it looks like when God loves. They mentioned it in the passage even. Look how he loved these people, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Let's just shorten it. Look how he loves. Look how he loves. Then Jesus seems to gather himself. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Imagine seeing this. The dead man, headed toward Dusty, came out. His hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, untie him. It's going to be harder to breathe if he's wrapped up in all that. Untie all of that stuff. That's death clothes and he doesn't need that anymore. Now, Now watch this. This is where we get to the threat of death. So the chief priests and the Pharisees immediately called a board meeting. (laughs) Immediately on the resurrection of Lazarus, they call a meeting and they said, what are we going to do? This man is performing many signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. (laughs) And the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation, verse 53. So from that day on, they plan to put him to death. Isn't that fascinating? Here is the Savior. Here is the Messiah who has now demonstrated a power over death, and they decide that it's bad for business. 
in order to keep peace with Rome, in order to continue the, their dream of regathering, rebuilding Jerusalem and a Jewish way of life as they understood it, this Jesus, this newcomer, had to be silenced by any means necessary. And I got to tell you, this resurrection story only complicates things. Like Rome, the leaders of the ruling council had learned to use death as the ultimate weapon. Death the threat of death, the fear of death. It, it, and it had been wildly successful. I think it's still wildly successful. Death is an intimidating trump card. If you really want to control somebody, if you really want to maintain the way things are, even if that means a stable captivity, death and the threat of death are effective means of leadership and behavior modification. And clenched fist leadership tends to result in clenched Fist followership. The tale is old as time. That is, until somebody beats death. In raising Lazarus, not only has Jesus restored a beloved brother to his sisters, not only has Jesus salvaged the life of one of his closest friends, not only has Jesus revealed himself to be the long-awaited Messiah, but this Jesus now has made a real mess of things. Jesus has revealed himself to be a significant threat to the powers that be, and Jesus can no longer be tolerated. He's just too dangerous, and he has to go. Verse 57, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who knew where Jesus was should let them know so that they might arrest him. The resurrection of Lazarus reveals Jesus to be the Lord over life and death. And his mastery over everything reveals him to be that long-awaited Messiah that signals the start of a new era. The resurrection at the end of time begins and has begun in Christ. Now, watch, watch this. So if Jesus is that guy, if Jesus is that Messiah, that Savior, that leader, then what does it look like to follow? Another way to ask it is, what does discipleship look like? Remember, disciples, like the, the concept here, if I were to give you a word picture or something like this, disciples are the people who follow so closely behind their leader that the dust of his sandal somehow gets on their clothes. If Jesus is the leader, then what does it look like to follow? Mary is going to show us what discipleship looks like. And, and as we now go through the text for today's sermon, watch for her open hands. At the same time, Judas, that Judas, is going to show us what desolation looks like. Watch for his clenched fists. And please keep in mind that all parties involved are in the wilderness. The threat of death hovers over everybody. Verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, caused quite a stir. There they gave a dinner for him, and Martha, as you would expect, served. Dutiful Martha. Love Martha. The world needs more Marthas. Amen. And Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. And then Mary. Mary took a pound, a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, took down her hair, and wiped his feet with her hair. Awkward. Because nice women don't do this. 
in that culture. But it needed to be done. But it needed to be done. The house then, it was so much perfume that the entirety of the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Martha's great, but what we see in Mary is extravagance. This is an important word for us today. In fact, what we see in Mary is that she loves extravagantly in response to Christ's extravagant love. Everybody see that so far? This was not a cost-effective move. Anybody else tired of Christian decisions being made on whether or not things are cost-effective? Now, I just made some of you really good business people, I just made you kind of break out in hives a little bit there. But listen, and I've had this discussion with several of you. This isn't a business. (laughs) Now, we need resources, but we need to do extravagantly loving and beautiful things with those resources. And all God's people said, because we're not a business. Mary is not counting the costs here. Mary doesn't care whether or not it's cost effective. (laughs) This was a loving, beautiful, meaningful, selfless, open-handed response to the reaction and reaction to love freely given. And that was the point for Mary. In fact, you all, love is the basis of her life of faith. Love. Having been loved, Mary's faith is a lived out, I love you too. Love is the basis of her faith. What is yours? What is mine? Well, I believe all the right things, and I've committed them to memory so I can say them just right. Great. If it's absent love, you're not quite there yet. Well, I do everything that I'm told. My life, I walk a straight line, never veering from the, to the left or to the right. Fantastic. If that's not somehow a life built on love, if the walking of that fine line is not a loving sort of thing for you, you're not quite there. And the good news for you who are not quite there just yet is the best parts lie ahead. You've not yet gotten to the best parts. Open-handedness is rarely cost-effective. In fact, you kind of need other ways to determine the effectiveness of a faith that is based purely on love. Otherwise, we're in danger of clenched fists and Judas Iscariot. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the narrator is just brutal in this gospel, (laughs) this is the one who's about to betray Jesus, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii, about a year's wages, so let's call it, I don't know, 30 grand? Why wasn't this perfume sold for $30,000 and the money given to the poor? Now that sounds awfully magnanimous, and, and that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Except that the narrator sort of just slays Judas and says, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief. That 30 grand would have looked really nice in the disciples' purse that they carried around to, you know, cover expenses. 
And Judas kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. The narrator is brutal. (laughs) Judas, to quote a commentary I read this week, is the person who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. His every move is made with clenched fists. Judas knows the stories. He hears the rumors. He understands that his own life is in danger. Since he fears for his own life, he clenches his fists. He's always been, especially now, consumed with money, perhaps somehow believing that money can protect him from death. There are those people. So he keeps a death grip on the money bag, clenched fists. He's dishonest. He talks a good game, but is unable to fully embody the godly posture of care for the poor. He's too busy gripping his own well-crafted reputation. Judas is the picture of desolation. Now, I think I've been too hard on Judas. Because here's the other thing that Judas is. Ready for this? I believe in the Greek you would call it chronically normal. After all, he's not the only one who's afraid of death, is he? There are countless versions of the hunger game. Some of you will get that, some of you won't. Playing out before our very eyes. Kill or be killed. You see this happening on an international stage. You can see it happening on our own city's streets. But it happens in less dramatic and less violent ways in countless conversations and situations at your workplace and maybe even at home every single day. For thousands of years and even today, people breathlessly chase money in the hopes of protecting themselves against death, the fear of death, the threat of death, against meaninglessness, against nothingness, against want. And honestly, who isn't constantly monitoring their public-facing, carefully crafted and curated personas and reputations? (laughs) How many people are curating their Facebook feeds Their Instagram feeds, why else would you have to tell the world how you did on Wordle? And all God's people said. (laughs) Hey. (laughs) What I'm saying is, perhaps Judas isn't odd. And still, Jesus says to him, leave her alone. Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. He said, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing. She has done an appropriate thing. She has loved extravagantly with open hands. She has responded to love with extravagant love, not counting the cost, not doing the math, not withholding anything, but recklessly and selflessly, extravagantly. She has loved me, says Jesus. And so she has shown herself to be my disciple. She gets it. Here's a question for you. Is Mary then the first open-handed, fully embodied disciple? I think she is. Because here's a woman who didn't have to be told to love. Soon we'll be having a Monday Thursday service, the mandate to love. 
She didn't need that service. She was already a lover like that. She didn't have to be coached to wash feet. That's going to happen in the next chapter with all those guys who, even in the chapter itself, you could read, didn't completely get it. She gets it. She seems to know already that love will be tested by death and the fear of death. She is, in fact, I'm sure through tears, anointing Jesus for his burial. She gets it. And I think I know why she gets it. I think she gets it because her hands were open to receive it. Open hands receive in a way that clenched fists can't. And everyone, including Jesus, including Judas, I'm sorry, and maybe even the several Judases that are in the room here today, everyone has offered the same love and grace, but the folks who insist on clenched fists, they find this grace hard to believe and ultimately hard to receive. They are offered love, but instead of choosing that love, they choose themselves. Mary offered a beautiful response of love to Christ's invitation for relationship and companionship to Mary. Jesus was worth this extravagant, loving sacrifice. To Judas, Jesus was worth 30 pieces of silver, especially if in the process he could save his own skin. Here's the question. What, what is this Jesus, the same Jesus, worth to you or to me. And you need to be careful because our answers to this question tell us more than we may want to know, any of us, about who is currently serving as Lord of our lives. What is this Jesus worth to you? (laughs) Mary knows who Jesus is, but beyond that, Mary knows what Jesus wants from Mary. Everything. Mary knows Jesus as Lord of her life, and consequently, no price is too high when it comes to acknowledging and responding to the one who calls in love and by grace. But again, the question is, how do you and I feel about this same Jesus who continues to call us, each of us, in love and by grace? Here's a question. Is there a price point where your discipleship is concerned beyond which ultimately you're just unable or unwilling to go? And that, my friends, is the project of Lent. That. That we would come to understand Jesus as Lord of our lives, ultimate sovereign leadership, and that we would diligently work to remove any barrier to his lordship in our lives, even and especially when the barrier is the person staring back at me in the mirror. Discipleship. When I started in youth ministry back in the early 60s, I remember that word discipleship having very specific meaning. In fact, does anybody remember the discipleship notebooks? Anybody remember those? 
three ring binders. And if you ever got all of those pages filled out and all of the blanks filled in, my friends, you were, hold it up, a disciple. Because all the right knowledge will have been poured into your, I still have these discipleship journals. And here's the thing, here's the thing. I think they are full of great information, helpful, reliable information. Here is the problem, though. The constant threat and temptation is that somehow we will understand discipleship as a matter simply of head knowledge. Again, if I think the right thoughts, if I hold the right opinions, and I can argue well, then I will demonstrate myself to be a disciple. Friends, that kind of disciple can live, can live with a clenched fist. I can find you the passage of Scripture if you want me to. I'll give you this one. Look at the letter to the church in Ephesus. Applauded, lauded, complimented because they had such a great grip on the articulation of truth. And yet, in the very same paragraph, they are threatened with losing their lampstand. And here's what this means in the book of Revelation. Jesus is saying to them, I don't know if I even want you to call yourself a church anymore. At least not my church. Because... Though you can articulate things well, you seem to have done so at the cost of love. And even if you're right and you lose love, you're wrong. So apparently, there is something more important for the disciple than good, even Christian, logic. Memorize all the scriptures. Really, do. Memorize them. But if that scripture doesn't help you embody and walk out love, then all you've done is memorize words. You fed your head, but God wants your heart. Now, that's when the notebook and all that head knowledge really can help amplify what it is that God wants to do. I am all for learning. I'm all for the theological discussion and discourse and all of those projects. I am, I am all for that. And our particular theological project says, if God just gets your mind but doesn't get your heart, then God doesn't have you yet. And so the head stuff is added to the heart, the heart stuff. I know people who can live an entire life. I know people living an entire Christian life with clenched fists, and they will fight you if you disagree with them to the glory of God. I also know people who run the race with open hands. I want to encourage you to run the race with open hands. Good to see you. I'm glad you're doing good. A runner's reunion. Burke sophomore Blake Servany and Bellevue East senior Brandon Shute meet again after fate brought them together at a district cross-country meet in Lincoln. I just really appreciate what he did, and I'm going to remember that. It happened Thursday, nearing the end of a 3.1-mile race, and with the finish line in sight, Servany fell to the ground for the fourth and final time. I just, my legs gave out on me, and I fell to the ground, just my hands hit. He wasn't down for long. Without hesitation, shoot, scooped up Servany. <laughs> helping his fellow runner. Everybody wanted to go out fast, you know. Everybody wants to, you know, 
hope that they're going to make state. Shoot's cross-country head coach Rachel Careher says she's not surprised Shoot lent a helping hand. Brandon is an excellent person. He's really kind, a great leader on the team. Just three weeks ago, Shoot was in Blake's shoes, unable to finish his heat. I felt awful about not finishing. You know, I felt like I was letting my teammates down and I was letting myself down. So ultimately, I made just made the call. Making sure Servany finished his. That's what cross-country is. You, it doesn't matter who you're going up against or the people that you're around. Because of what Brandon did, Blake says that if he sees a runner that needs a helping hand, he won't hesitate. Waverly Monroe, KETV Newswatch 7. Get the metaphor right. I mean, what high school kid is going to turn his back on a medal? I mean, they grip those medals tightly, right? Making it to state, that's something you grip with both hands, and you've worked hard for it. Why not? I would love to know what all went on in this young man's mind and heart that allowed him to see a better way to run the race. He ran that race with open hands. By the way, the person he helped also really had to have open hands as well, right? Because open hands not only give help, but open hands are available to receive help as well. Now, do you understand why we ask for you to come to the table with open hands? If you're helping us today, please come and help us set the table. And Heavenly Father, uh, please bless these elements. It is a simple piece of bread and a simple sip from a cup, and yet, God, in your hands it becomes something more. And as you place these elements in our hands, may we understand what it is that is happening in us and to us and for us. God, bless these elements and with them grow us toward Christ-likeness. Grow us in our capacity to loosen our grip and live and navigate this wilderness with hands that are more and more open all the time. If you're visiting with us today, you'll notice that we take communion by intinction. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand to your feet and to come down front with your hands opened. And as you come to the front, the person right here in front of you will be holding a piece, a plate of bread. That person will take a piece of bread and place it in your open hands and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And in saying that, just in saying that, that person is for you, referencing our origin story. All of this has to do with love. And it's a love that starts in the heart of God before it starts in your decision for God. Take that piece of bread, but don't eat it just yet. Dip it into the cup. The person standing right there next to the person with the bread is holding a cup. Once you dip that bread into that cup, that person will say to you, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you, and then take and eat. And then, friends, I hope that you'll find a place to pray. Now, if you choose not to participate today, that is perfectly fine. All are invited. All who understand their need for grace are invited, but no one is compelled. All are invited, but none are compelled. Or perhaps you would prefer still being careful God bless you if you are, to take communion, but with a different sort of piece here. We have some prepackaged communion, and as soon as you get that communion, go ahead and take it and open and eat it, and that works just as well. But I do hope after taking that you too will find a place to pray. And it could be up here up front. Maybe this is where you want to say, 
God, I'm going to do my best Mary impersonation here and do my best to give you more than I've ever given you before. At least, God, help me to be less like Judas. Open my hands just enough to receive what I need today. If you come to one of these side padded altars, we're going to assume that you are there for a prayer for healing. And somebody will meet you there to pray that prayer. It'll be Pastor Daniel over here. And Pastor Tashton, can I invite, can you pray with people who come over here to this altar over here? And that prayer can be a prayer for healing of your physical body, but perhaps it's something more emotional or relational or spiritual, mental. Any of those prayers are welcome at the healing altar. Or you might just want to pray at your seat. That's fine too. But I'm praying, I'm praying that you will receive some glimpse of what it is that motivated Mary to do the crazy and awkward thing that she did. And maybe on your way either to communion table or away from it, you might dip your fingers into this baptismal bowl and remember that you belong to the family of God. May the chill of this water remind you where you belong. It was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread. He blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. And every time you eat of it, remember me. That includes today. The same way later he took the cup, he held it up before them and he said, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. And every time you drink it, remember me. That includes today. Now all across the sanctuary, all who would, you are now invited to come to this table. Go ahead and let the, these people will, will kind of dismiss you by row, but go ahead and come now to receive these gifts of God meant for the people of God.
I know that people are still coming. I'm going to go ahead and start our prayer of confession before handing it over Pastor Ken to finish it out with intercession and the Lord's Prayer. So Heavenly Father, would you hear us and receive us today as we confess that there are days when we fall short of Mary and look a little bit more like Judas than we want to. We confess, God, that our fists are clenched and sometimes we don't know how to open our hands. I encourage you now, church, as I get out of the way, to pray your own prayer of confession and pray that God will show you why your fists are clenched and perhaps how to open your hands.